Episode 29, ETFs versus Mutual Funds. Welcome to Retirement Tactical Money Management. Joe Cantu, Chief Investment Officer of Cantu Tactical Wealth Management, is your host and has over 30 years of experience in the retirement money management profession. He is a West Point graduate with a Master's in Business Administration and has worked for three of the largest Wall Street firms as a stockbroker and portfolio manager. Episode 29, ETFs versus Mutual Funds. I had many uh, classmates and I've answered many questions on uh, Quora.com on ETFs versus Mutual Funds. What's interesting about uh, my story on ETFs is I was probably one of the first money managers in the United States to be using uh, ETFs in my clients' portfolios going all the way back uh, to the uh, early 2000s. So what I'm going to do in this podcast, and I'm hoping that this is one of the most comprehensive podcasts you've had on ETFs versus mutual funds, um, I will give you the history of, of ETFs. I will give you a breakdown of the comparisons, uh, the benefits of, of ETFs uh, versus mutual funds. And then I will move into uh, different types of ETFs that are out there that you are able to use for your portfolio. Now, this is probably the most important part of the podcast. We'll do this uh, after a commercial break, but uh, I will give uh, give you some great ideas on um, how to find these ETFs for your portfolios, when to use the ETFs, what types of ETFs and what categories, and how to use them in your portfolios. And then lastly, I will talk about some really high-risk ETFs with a lot of volatility. And, uh, you know, volatility is not bad. It's only bad if you're losing money. So the key thing is I will explain how and when to use these volatile ETFs. And, again, this is for strictly educational reasons, entertainment purposes only. I'm not recommending any of these investments. You can lose your money in uh, any ETF, you know, because uh, the principle is not guaranteed uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, so uh, it's important to understand that. All right. So let's get started. First off, let me give you a little bit of a history of an ETF. Because I remember when they, they first came out. I've been in the business a long time as as uh as you've heard. Um, and so in 1995, I had already been a, a, a stockbroker uh, and a portfolio. I was just moving into the portfolio management business. Uh, I'd been in the business about seven years when ETF started to roll out. And the first ETF to roll out was the S&P uh, 500 uh, ETF, the Spiders S&P 500 ETF. And basically, it's uh, an index. So what you have is you have index companies, and in this case, it was Standard & Poor. Standard & Poor is a research firm, 
and they uh, write research reports and you pay for them and typically a subscription and it depends there's different levels of subscriptions at Standard & Poor but typically an annual subscription for some of their research is like $25,000 a year it's very expensive but you know knowledge is power and uh, some of these Standard & Poor research uh, pieces go into detail on stock prices and uh, what's inside a company and how it's working but you know they created what uh, years ago uh, what's called the Standard and Poor uh, 500, and you know there was there's the Forbes 500, and there's the Standard and Poor 500. They're both 500 companies, and but yet we consider the S and P. It's called Standard and Poor. The S and P 500, the market. It's commonly called the stock market. Now, if you ask a, 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 an advisor such as myself, what's the stock market? I don't give you one answer. Uh, most people quote the Dow, the Dow Jones. Now, the Dow Jones is the Dow Jones 30. Dow Jones is a research company, just like Standard & Poor. They write research reports. Uh, matter of fact, Dow Jones and Company started in, uh, I believe it was 1894, Charles Dow, uh, I think, wrote the first research report in 1894 in the stock market, and then that's how Dow Jones uh, was created. And uh, and then, of course, now Standard & Poor. I don't know if they started in the 40s, or you could Google it or Wikipedia it to find out more about Standard & Poor. But uh, the, the Dow Jones, back then, they, he created, uh, Charles Dow created 30 stocks, that represented uh, the biggest companies in America. Now, back then, you know, I think the biggest company was Standard Oil at that time, which is now a conglomeration of ExxonMobil and Chevron and Texaco and, and who knows what else. But uh, uh, that was back then. But the Dow Jones is the oldest index in the United States, and it is only 30 companies. It's truly amazing how close the Dow and the S&P track together. Uh, it's just amazing. Because one's, the S&P is 500 companies, and yet the Dow is only 30, but they track very close together. And uh, it's because the Dow owns the 500 big, the, the Dow owns 30 of the largest companies, but yet, um, so, so all the Dow Jones is completely inside the S&P 500. And, but yet, because the S&P 500 is cap-weighted, and what I mean by that, it's, it's weighted on capitalization, on size, uh, common term is size. It's size-weighted, uh, we say cap-weighted in our business, that it has the Dow Jones component in there. Now, uh, I'll tell you an interesting statistic uh, to talk about the influence of the largest companies in the S&P. I believe the return, somebody had, had told me uh, for 2017, it was, uh, yeah, I see so many research reports across my desk, but I had read that in 2017, um, they, I think it was around September or, or October timeframe, but the Dow Jones, the uh, uh, S&P 500 was up over 20%. And, uh, you know, it was it was just running 
really, really well. Maybe it was around like 22%, I believe. And then what was interesting about that fact is that if you took out the top seven stocks in size from the S&P, the return year to date as of that September for 2017 was only 5%. Now that's an amazing statistic. So yet the S&P 500 was up 22% year to date. Had you stripped out the top five companies of the S&P, the return was only 5%. So that's that's what's interesting about being cap-weighted. And of course, what were those companies? Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, uh, Facebook. You know, so that's just an example of some of the largest companies that are in the S&P. Um, so it's important to understand that because that has an influence. Even today as we speak, it's interesting. I was watching the market um, just, well, I watch the market every day. I watch it many times during the day. That's that's my business. But I noticed in the last two weeks that a majority of the S&P 500 was down for the last two weeks. Now, in our portfolios, the last two weeks have been terrific. We have, we have done real well in our portfolios. But it, as it turns out, you know, the group of stocks that we own, <laughs> just, you know, we have some that are moving down on some days and some that are moving up on, on other days. But overall, in the last two weeks, we have turned a nice profit for the last two weeks, despite the fact that probably two thirds of the S&P 500 stocks are down or moving down. But that's also an indication to me that. Uh, the market was moving down. So what So we, we did a couple of weeks ago when I saw that, that that first week, we cut some of our biggest positions uh, in half. And uh, just for disclosure reasons, I'll say that um, that uh, what we sold is we, we cut our Apple position in half, uh, our Microsoft position in half, um, our Amazon position in half. Uh, what was else? NVIDIA position in half. And uh, uh, there's another tech stock. I don't remember what it is. We cut it in half. But all we did was take some profits off the table. Well, why did I do that? I did that because I called the breadth of the market. In other words, that's the term that we use in our industry, the overall market. We call the breadth. The breadth of the market was moving negative. So to me, that just meant for money managers such as myself, that meant that was, and, and we have other portfolio managers at our firm. We all had these discussions, so we took some profits off, off the table. What's interesting in that is we didn't sell Facebook. We didn't cut our position in Facebook, uh, just some of these other uh, tech, tech companies um, that we cut our position in. Now, also in that time, you have to realize that Apple also announced a four-for-one stock split. I believe it's four-for-one. It could have been five-for-one. And then um, Tesla re reported a five-for-one stock stock split. So, uh, and anytime we hear stock, stock split, we like to sell the stock before it splits rather than after it splits. That's just a, uh, I don't want to say it's, uh, as we say in the Army, SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, but it's it's a routine and uh, it's, it's just a routine that we follow at the company. It's not written in stone or uh, there's nothing that says that we have to do that. Anyway, 
my point is, is that uh, I saw the breadth of the market pulling back. So, you know, we sell the position. Now, let's go back to the S&P. So I'm having you understand what an index is. And this is the first premise, that, not the first premise, but the first thought, educational concept to understand of what an ETF is. So um, when Standard & Poor uh, had these 500 companies that represent, now we call it the stock market, you know, and uh, but really the stock market is the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500. That, all three of those together, is really what we call the stock market. So um, I got a little bit off track in the beginning, but if you ask me what the stock market is, I normally will quote you the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500. Those three together are what we call, um, or what I consider the stock market. But if you ask a portfolio manager who has to track a benchmark, his benchmark for the stock market is the S&P 500. So later on, uh, a company named Vanguard created a mutual fund uh, of the S&P 500. They actually purchased, so, so Standard & Poor created the 500 companies. It's just a list of stocks. It's a list of companies. The other thing to understand about that, it's a managed index, which means it changes. It's not the 500 biggest companies and it never moves for the whole year. They're constantly changing that. And I don't know the parameters inside S&P, what causes them in a particular month to uh, change the S&P. But it's almost like the top, the, the lower 25 companies are always changing. For example, uh, just... Uh, within the last 30 days, Tesla entered the S&P 500. It is, yeah, if you can believe that. Tesla, which is now profitable, uh, and it wasn't profitable, you know, as of 12 months ago, it still had negative earnings, but it now has positive earnings, but Tesla has entered the S&P 500. Now, to enter the S&P, that means Standard & Poor kicked some other company out that probably wasn't doing well. So what I mean by it's a managed index, it's a it's a list that changes, and uh, S&P just changes the numbers. Now, so Vanguard, which is a mutual fund company, and there's American Funds, Fidelity, Vanguard, there's all kinds of mutual fund companies out there, BlackRock, I think BlackRock is the largest, I think. And um, so they actually purchased the 500 companies. Now, in order to do that, uh, let's talk about what a mutual fund is. A mutual fund is a basket of securities. Now, the reason I use the word securities, because it's not necessarily just stocks. It can be a basket of bonds. It can be a basket of commodities. It can be a basket of, of uh, I guess, real estate, if you wanted it to, to, to be a basket of that. Uh, so it's just a basket of securities. And then there's a money manager, a portfolio manager, a money manager, a mutual fund manager over that basket. And you can throw your money in it. And I believe the first mutual fund started in, uh, now I'm not that old, but I believe it started in 1936. It's either 1934 or 1936. 
but uh, I believe the first mutual fund uh, that started was MFS, Massachusetts Financial Services, I believe started the very first mutual fund, and then maybe American funds came along in maybe 1940 or 1939, 1938, kind of that time frame. Uh, they're out of California. I think I forget where MFS is. I think they're out of uh, Boston. Uh, I think could could be New York. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is they created this basket because not everybody could afford to buy all these stocks. So you throw your money in the basket, and then you get a little sliver, a little pie. So when you say you own so many shares of a mutual fund, uh, say there's a you know ten thousand shares and and maybe you own 500 shares of a mutual fund, you own that sliver. Now, what's important to understand about that is that the money manager or the portfolio manager of the mutual fund is actually having to buy these stocks on the exchange to put them in the portfolio. Now, what does that mean? That means, number one, there is a, a mutual fund manager. He's getting paid a salary. So his salary charges the fund a fee. And that's called an expense, part of the expense ratio. And what's not part of the expense ratio is the commissions that the mutual fund has to pay to buy the stocks. That's considered what's called a net transaction. So, for example, if you went to buy the stock and, you know, say it was a, uh, let's make this up. Let's say they're buying a $10 stock and uh, and you buy the stock for $10, but it costs you, say, you know, a penny a share, you know, because you have to pay commission. You're buying in bulk. You actually paid, it actually cost the fund 10.1 or 10.01. Um, and, and, and that's the actual performance. Now, the commissions for the mutual fund are not part of the expense ratio. A lot of people don't know that. And um, most advisors, your, your standard average regular financial planner, uh, registered rep, stockbroker, uh, investment advisor, they do not know what I just told you. You can take notes on that. And you can look it up yourself and go to the SEC website. But uh, commissions for a mutual fund are not part of the expense ratio. So what, is that, what does that really mean? So in general, they say that you can add uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 basis points uh, to a um, uh, mutual fund uh, for commissions. Now, commissions are a big deal for mutual funds, and I will explain that later and how that affects um, the mutual fund itself, especially when investors get scared and they're wanting to sell out. And a good example is Y2K. So uh, at the end of the millennium last year, uh, when we started to cross, you know, January 1st, 2000, uh, that Many people thought planes were going to fall out of the sky and things like that. So prior to that, there was a lot of investors afraid, and they began to sell their mutual funds. Now, every time they sold their mutual funds, the mutual fund manager had to sell, and he had to pay a commission to get rid of it 
and uh, to get that out of his portfolio, and that's called a redemptions, to get the money to pay back the investors who were afraid. So um, anyway, Vanguard goes out there and they buy all 500 companies. And they created the first mutual fund that was the stock market because we, you know, people were starting in the 70s, starting called the uh, uh, Vanguard, Vanguard, and, and uh, everyone was looking at Vanguard, and Vanguard said, hey, we created basically a mutual fund of, of the stock market, which was the S&P 500. So that kind of goes bumping along up until 1995. Now, one of the problems with mutual funds, and they're very common to use, I call those old traditional mutual funds, and they're very common to use in a um, 401k. Now, if you notice the name of my podcast is Hidden Truths, uh, Retirement and 401k. Uh, so... 401k commonly uses traditional mutual funds and have been using those for years uh, for investments. Matter of fact, um, for many, many years, and I don't know if it's still law, but for teachers and teachers' retirement systems, um, the SEC or I don't know who in their infinite wisdom or somebody uh, has ra- has rallied and that teachers cannot buy individual stocks in their 401k. They are restricted to mutual funds in their 401k. Now today, uh, which is uh, August the 25th, 2020, many 401ks, um, large 401k plans, you can buy individual stocks in your 401k. But uh, if the law's still in place, teachers cannot, and they are restricted to mutual funds. It's almost like uh, someone out there feels that teachers aren't smart enough, uh, to be quite frank, uh, and they're protecting them because they could get into a individual stock that they don't know what they're doing, like Tesla is a good example, or very risky, very volatile stock. Uh, and it could go down, you can lose all your money. So because of that, they restrict teachers to only use mutual funds in their 401k. Now, one of the, the problems of mutual funds is that when you put your money in a mutual fund and you, you make your purchase, the way you get the price is you don't get the price until the closing price at the end of the day. So if you put your money in the Vanguard S&P 500, um, mutual fund, and there are other mutual funds that have um, the S&P 500 now. But you put your money in during the day, your brokerage firm or investment advisor or financial planner writes a ticket, and he sends it to whoever's buying the, the mutual fund, and they, at the end of the day, they get the closing price. Market closes at 4 o'clock. The, the, by 5 o'clock, the uh, mutual fund price is computed and that's the price you get and that's the price you purchase the mutual fund for. So now you have your mutual fund. So the next day you can log into your account and then you can see that you have that mutual fund 
and you can see the price you bought it at. Now, what's interesting to know is that the market can be going up and down that day, and you have no idea what your what the price is of your mutual fund. Because what happens is they only price it one time during the whole day. And when do they price it? At the close of business. <laughs> so it's actually priced one hour after the close of business. It has to be priced by five o'clock. Market, I'm, I'm on Eastern time. Market closes at four. So here you're looking at your account. And let's say this, let's say that I'm, I'm making this up, but let's say you put in $25,000 into your mutual fund. Let's say you purchased it at par. So it says 25,000. And then the stock market went down that day. And let's say it went down, I don't know, so many percent. That your 25,000 is really worth 24,000. So. If you look at your account, it still says 25000 but you got to know that the stock market is down for the day, so you got to know you're losing money, and you just don't know how much you're losing. So then the next day, you pull up your account, your 401k account, there's your mutual fund, and then you can see that it says 24000 But that day, the market could be going up. So as you can see, for years, I mean decades, this has been the problem of mutual funds, and mutual funds were typically for the small investor. Um, the other advantage of mutual funds is hey, they had dividend reinvestment. They were great for 401k programs because they so sold partial shares. Um, now, in the beginning, they used to not. They used to wait until the money accumulated to go buy one share of a fund. But now they do partial shares because of computers. They can break them down into partial shares. So anyway, that went on for quite some time. So now in 1995, Vanguard, the same, uh, well, uh, I think it was Spiders. Spiders, they came out with uh, a, um, and I think that's First Trust company. They came out with the first exchange-traded S&P 500 fund. And the ticker symbol, if you're taking notes or listening to this podcast, is SPY, S-P-Y. Now, I'm not recommending SPY. I'm not recommending the S&P 500. This is for educational purposes only and is not considered a recommendation. All right. So just remember, I SPY. S-P-Y is the first ETF that traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, the structure internally of the S&P 500 is completely different. Uh, let me say it a different way. The stocks are the same. It's 500 companies uh, selected by Standard & Poor. But the, uh, the bones that surround it or the operating system of the mechanics all of all of the words above that I just used that create the ETF is completely different than the traditional mutual fund out there. So now today, 
in your 401k, you have growth mutual funds, you have value mutual funds. Um, you know, growth mutual funds have tech stocks in them, value mutual funds have like energy stocks in them. You have international funds, you have all types of mutual funds. And each mutual fund manager, or each mutual fund has a mutual fund manager. He gets paid a salary, which charge, which has an expense ratio, and he in turn uh, has to pay commissions to put those stocks in there. So if he gets a lot of money in, then his machine has to be running, and they got to go out and purchase those stocks. If he has heavier redemptions moving out, he has to turn around. And he has to make those redemptions and pay those people back. And he has to do that all within the same day. And then at the end of the day, they, they compute the number. So that's kind of what's going on throughout the day. Now, there is a transaction cost. If you look up uh, mutual funds and the expense ratio, and many advisors, brokers, financial planners, all the above, will argue till they're blue in the face that that transaction cost is commissions on the purchase of the stocks inside the mutual funds. I am here to tell you that that is not true. Those transaction costs on that expense ratio is the expense that pays for the room that those people sit in their little booths or on their tables processing the transaction of your money into the mutual fund or the mutual fund back out to give you your redemption money. So it pays for their salaries, their telephones, their um, uh, computers, uh, overhead, all the above. It pays for the actual transaction of converting money to shares and shares to money of the mutual fund. It does not cover the commissions uh, for the purchase of the mutual fund itself, of the actual stocks itself. All right. So now you understood that. So um, anyway, the, the point is, is that th there's a lot of work that has to be done. And the, the new word that uh, we use today in 2020 about the inability to see the actual value of your investment on your computer screen or your phone is the word called transparency. So in essence, a mutual fund, the old traditional mutual fund in 1994 was not very transparent. You were always one day behind. When the ETF came out, uh, SPY, all of a sudden, you had much higher transparency. Now, the word transparency also means being able to see uh, the holdings, the cost, uh, and several other things. So, <laughs> let me tell you something else that's funny. When you go to look at one of your mutual funds... Many times, uh, and this has been for years, and it's still today, it's still done today. Let's say that you're purchasing the uh, 
American Funds Growth Fund, and and I'm not picking on them because all the mutual fund companies do it to say Janus, Vanguard, all of them, uh, Franklin Templeton Growth. Many of them will sh- only show you the top ten holdings. Now they may have fifty holdings inside that particular mutual fund. So for example. Let's say you're buying the energy fund and it owns 50 energy stocks. So it would own Exxon, Chevron, uh, uh, Slum, uh, not Slumberger, uh, but uh, Baker Hughes, Halliburton. Uh, so, you know, Marathon Oil. So it, it owns all of these energy companies. Well, the mutual fund companies didn't want you to know what stocks they're buying. Because they felt that if you knew what stocks they're buying, you'll go out and buy them yourself. Why do you need the mutual fund company? So because of that, they hid. They do not disclose their top holdings, and they're not required to by the Security Exchange Commission. So uh, just and in the beginning, they never told you. Uh, in the very, very beginning for the mutual funds, they just said the energy mutual fund. And then later on, they show the top five holdings and then top 10. And then you can actually uh, see the top 25 holdings of most mutual fund companies. Now, if you go on, um, I think like Morningstar.com is uh, might be free research or free research uh, company. Uh, Morningstar.com is 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 just a company that keeps up with mutual funds. They were they were the first company to actually start following uh, mutual funds, and to use that word "follow" means to keep up with them. And so, uh, I think that one of the requirements, but it got so popular that every a lot of these mutual funds wanted to be on Morningstar, which is another research company. Uh, because a lot of people got their information from Morningstar and may buy the mutual fund through them. But I think what Morningstar required is they required them to own, to disclose the top 25 holdings is I believe that's, that's what they do. Now I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but you can uh, go to Morningstar.com yourself and look. And if not, you may have to use a paid subscription, which might be, I don't know, 29, $39 today. I don't know what it is, but most of Morningstar.com is free. Anyway, so so that that's funny that old traditional mutual funds do not want you to know all their holdings because they're afraid you'd go out and buy them yourself. So why would you need them? But what they don't realize is that typically people who use mutual funds don't have time because that's why they buy the fund. They're busy. You know, that's not what they do or it's in their 401k. So they're not really going to do that anyway. So, uh, in as as when spiders came out, the S and P came out, uh, the ETF. It was clear by then with you know because now you're you're you have the computer age. The computer age started in the '80s, so you had the full decade of the '80s, and then you're five years into it, 1995. A lot of uh, information out there, so a lot of people knew what some of these. Uh, uh, you know, stocks were doing, and and again, the they there's no threat to people who buy mutual funds versus people who buy stocks. Anyway, so that's why they they came out with the ETF, and it shows all 500 companies. You know, but that's an index, and everybody knows 
what the 500 companies were. So anyway, uh, that means that old traditional mutual funds have poor transparency, which means you cannot see their holdings, all of their holdings. Now, what's interesting as far as transparency, there's a lot of mutual funds today, and let me just, just continue on. But in 2000, I started using uh, some mutual funds, and I started using uh, uh, ETFs. Rather, I started using ETFs, and I used a combination of mutual funds, stocks, and ETFs in my portfolios. And as we moved into uh, 2008, I used a lot of uh, fixed income ETFs for bonds and things like that. If any of you've traded individual bonds, you know you got to get a bid and you got to get an ask to put a bond into there. If you're getting um, individual uh, uh, tax-exempt municipal bond funds or tax-exempt governments or treasuries or Freddie Macs or Ginnie Mays, anyway, you know the hassle it is to get these individual bonds. So I liked using uh, mutual funds uh, before ETFs came around. And then I started in about 2001, 2002, I believe, started using ETFs because by then there were ETFs rolling out that had fixed income securities in them. And it was just easier instead of getting a bit in the ask. And what's interesting about an ETF is the SEC requires that they disclose the entire holdings and they use the five o'clock rule by five o'clock. The ETF company must post their entire holdings inside the ETF for public uh, disclosure. So you can go to their website and pull up the ETF that you own, and you can see all the holdings inside the ETF. So right off the bat, in terms of comparison of transparency, you know, number we're going to talk about two things. Number one. You can see the price during the day. So when the ETF trades during the day, you can actually see the price of the fund because it trades on the exchange. You can see the value of the fund going up and down instantaneously, split-second delay. You can see the value of all those stocks trading up and down. You cannot see that on your old traditional mutual fund. You're one day behind. But on an ETF, you can see it trade the value of those 500 uh, stocks trading up and down. If you own an energy ETF, you can see the value of the 50, uh, 50 different companies of that energy ETF trading up and down. You know, they, they average the price of that. So uh, that's what's so cool. So automatically you have two levels of transparency. The first level is that you can see the value trade during the day, you're not the day behind. And the second level of transparency is that you can see all the holdings of the ETF, not just the top 10 or the top 25 uh, holdings of the mutual fund. Now let's talk about um, how the stocks are placed inside the ETF. Now, now this is this is very very interesting. So, the uh, the actual basket, you know, and, and and first of all, let me back up and let me talk a little bit more about the index. You need to understand this concept uh, 
uh, first off. So somehow, in the infinite wisdom of the SEC, they didn't want to have a, I guess, a financial product that, and, and, and this part I'm making up a little bit, I don't know what their, their thoughts were behind it, uh, if they didn't want another financial product to compete against the mutual fund. So I believe in the, the concept or the th- train of thought of the SEC, there has to be a benefit to the public, you know, something good to the public. So it doesn't make sense to create just another mutual fund that trades on the exchange if there's no benefit to the public. So what what they did is is um, uh, they asked the SEC that we want to use these indexes for ETFs, exchange traded funds. So there's the S and P 500 index. There's the S and P Energy Index. There's the Dow Jones Transportation Index, which is a very, very famous index. It's kind of considered a leading indicator of the market. Um, so what I mean by that is typically uh, the the theory, the Transportation Index theory goes, so goes the Dow Jones Transportation Index. Typically within 30 days, the market follows. And it's crazy. But I've been in the business 32 years, and I can tell you, that's probably about 80% true. It is crazy how that happens. I can't tell you how many times where I saw the market going up and the transportation index started going down, you know, and I said, oh, no, no, it's the market's just doing too good. You know, it's going to keep going up. But nope, within 30 days, boom, there goes the market following the transportation index down. So there's a lot to do with that theory. So they created the Dow Jones, uh, which is, you know, a uh, transportation stocks for the Dow. Dow Jones, uh, like Standard & Poor, created Dow Jones Transportation Index. So now there's an ETF out there called the Dow Jones Transportation Index. But I, I have to tell you, so there's so many different, so, so the key thing to understand about ETFs versus old traditional mutual funds is that ETFs have to follow an index according to the SEC. So when they do their filing, uh, say a, a company who does a filing, say BlackRock in this case is creating a, a an index for say biotech biotechnology stocks. It's real popular right now because you know they all this COVID nineteen stuff. You know there's uh, you know, biotechs. You know you can you know if you want to own AstraZeneca and then you know. Uh, uh, all these other companies that are creating the new vaccine, well, just just go do your homework and and do your research and, and find an ETF that owns them. They're probably in a biotech fund. That's probably where they're at. So uh, anyway, so if you don't want to buy the individual stock, just get the ETF, the biotech ETF. Anyway, and I'm not recommending that, but but they are in there. So um, So now you realize that in today's world, we use the term index, you know, buy an index, which really means buy an exchange-traded fund that purchases the list of names in the index by the research company. But now the words are interchangeable. Now back, you know, in 2008, which is uh, 12 years ago, um, something happened extraordinary. And that's right in the middle of the financial crisis. But 
indexes uh, typically do not change their index. It's just a list of stocks, except once a year. Some of the old older indexes, but then there are some indexes which change some of the names in the index. Maybe once every six months. Uh, probably the most do it on a quarterly basis. You know, I don't know of anyone who does it monthly, but uh, I think some of the more active indexes now today can do it monthly. But back then, uh, they only did it uh, quarterly at the most. But what's interesting is in 2008, the uh, SEC deregulated the uh, ETF in, uh, industry that they now allowed quarterly changes for the index and allowed the ETF companies to adapt those quarterly changes. And that just kind of opened Pandora's box, or let me not say open Pandora's box, that's not a good analogy. It opened the the gate to the uh, to the little birdcage, where all of a sudden the world was now available. So all of these ETFs started coming out. Uh, energy ETFs. I mean, there's gold ETFs. You know, with gold bullion, silver ETFs. There's uh, again the biotech ETFs. There's micro biotech ETFs. There's uh, I mean uh, cannabis ETFs out there for you know, for uh, marijuana. I mean, there's all kinds of ETFs out there. If you think about it, they have an index. And so a company, whether it's BlackRock or Vanguard or, or, or Fidelity or just all of these different companies out there will go out and create this index. Now, here's what's interesting about the index. Because it's an index, and, and so... Let me first explain how the stocks are put inside uh, an ETF. And, and I, I like to use my slang term and say they're put in there by book entry, which means there's no commission cost to put that, that stock in there. Now, on today's trading, there's no commissions on the exchange anyway. But the point is, is that it's you're not holding the, you know, when you hold a mutual fund, you hold a, a, a slice, a pie, and you're participating in the basket with everyone else, and you own a slice of pie of that basket. When you own an ETF, you, you actually own the shares allocated in your ETF. That's, that's a little bit different. You actually own the shares inside the ETF now, and, and in your account is a paper representation of the shares of that ETF, but you actually own the shares. You don't own the basket. Now, what, what's hard to understand, just, just follow me on this, in both cases, both investors own the same stocks. So in the case of the, uh, uh, let's say the energy uh, ETF uh, A, let's say energy ETF A, uh, old traditional mutual fund, he owns the 50 shares of now if, of the energy stocks uh, index, the ETF will own the same. But the difference is, is how they got there. So the way the actual 
ETF has done is there's something, there's a an entity, could be a person or entity, call an active participant. So in the case of the S&P 500, this active participant physically buys, and, and I'm making this up, say he buys $100 million of the S&P 500, and he has them in a, in a huge, large account. And so that's $100 million. So let's say during the trading day, uh, the actual ETF of people purchasing ETFs out there is maybe only $10 million. So what happens is the ETF company book entries the shares over to the ETF company that represents the holdings of the individual people in their accounts of the ETF. So what's interesting about that, now this is what happened before with, with stocks, what they had to purchase them on the exchange, is all of a sudden there's basically a cost reduction because now you don't have a, a manager every day who's buying and selling these stocks. It's just done by computer book entry. And we call them passively managed because you physically don't have a money manager buying and selling stocks every day for the ETF. He only has to change the positions of the shares as the index changes, which might be once a quarter. So there's very, very little expense ratio or cost to the ETF because the money manager doesn't have to work very hard. All the stocks that exchange into the ETF shares that you own in your account are done all book entry. They're done instantaneously, by the way. They're done instantaneously. And so what's in it for the active participant? Well, the active participant makes the, uh, the uh, has to bring the shares or the ETF back to net asset value. And he, may, my, he, probably, he makes that fraction of a share difference between the bid and the ask on the stock. And that's the money the active participant makes during the day. And that's happening, happening in milliseconds during the day. So the more actively traded an ETF is, the more money the active participant makes. And it's all transferred book entry. You know, when you go buy a stock on the exchange, not only do you have to deal with the bid and the ask, but in addition, you have to pay the commission. Well, not anymore because they're commission-free, but, you know, there's probably still one one-hundredths of a penny in order flow because many companies sell order flow to each other, which is how they're making some extra money. That's kind of a complicated issue. But in general, my point is, is that an ETF is so efficient it just transfers over book entry. The, there's not a guy there trading it every day, buying and selling the positions. It's just done book entry. The, sh the shares inside the fund trade maybe once a quarter. Now, today there probably are some new monthly traded uh, active ETFs, but they all follow an index. Now, why is this important to our firm, Cantu Tactical Wealth Management? There's two general ways of managing money 
and that's the strategic method and the tactical method. And typically, if you're a tactical money manager, you follow uh, sectors. Sectors are like the energy sector, technology sector, industrial sector, utility sectors. And so who creates uh, ind- sectors? These research companies who create indexes. And so is there a product out there that represents the index? Yes, they're called ETFs. So now you understand, like the name of our firm is Cantu Tactical Wealth Management. So all of a sudden this fits. So for example, if the stock, here's our view. Let's say the stock market's up today and there's 11 sectors in the stock market, but say only five of those sectors are up. Well, our view is we want to own the top five sectors for the month. We don't want to own, you know, the other six. And so uh, we that's how we manage money tactically. And then we drill down and we buy individual stocks. So our portfolios at Cantu Tactical Wealth Management uh, consists of uh, probably about 75% uh, individual stocks and 25% ETFs. Now, let me go um, uh, give you a breakdown of one more time of some of the key factors on ETFs. So there's number one, cost. So automatically, you're looking at a cheaper cost inside an ETF. So an expense ratio for a mutual fund will be anywhere from 75 basis points all the way to 150 basis points, maybe even 175 or 2%. 100 basis points is uh, 1%. So that's the cost. An ETF will be, I mean, SPY, I think the uh, expense ratio for SPY is 12 basis points. It's incredibly, incredibly cheap. So you're getting bare bones. You're getting more of the of the meat of the actual uh, security itself by owning the ETF. So the cost automatically, and again, the money manager, you're not paying him as much because they're passively managed. So the cost is cheaper on an ETF versus a mutual fund. Tradability. You have more control on the tradability of an ETF versus an old traditional mutual fund. So control is what it's all about. So you can only buy or sell a mutual fund in one day, and it takes a full day for you to get the next mutual fund. Not so on an ETF. ETF trades during the day. You can buy it and sell it. It trades just like a stock on the exchange. But you might be trading bonds, stocks, gold, commodities, all kinds of things. So you have, number two, you have more control with an ETF, which represents tradability on the ETF. Number three, you have greater transparency on the ETF. As I told you before, you can see the, the stocks. It's a requirement in ETF. In an ETF, it's not a requirement in a mutual fund. And uh, so... That transparency uh, relates to the fact that you know what you own and you can see the you can actually even see the percent of how much stock they own in that particular ETF.
Now, let me uh, talk to you about one other thing that many people don't even think about, and that is called uh, sharing capital losses. So let me just tell you a quick story. So in, in during the Y2K event, um, again, they thought planes were going to fall out of the sky, and this is the, the change of the millennium. So before that, a year before that, and as it got closer and closer, investors were afraid, and they began to sell their mutual funds. So what's interesting about that is that if you're in the same pot, the same basket with that pie, and one guy sells, that affects your uh, capital gains inside that mutual fund. So when when all the small investors sell, and let's say you're not going to sell, that raises the amount of capital gains in that mutual fund that you got to pay at the year end. At year end, it causes you more taxes, is what I'm saying. Now I have to disclose I don't give tax or legal advice, but the fact is, small investors in a mutual fund can cause you more taxes versus an ETF. In the ETF, you don't participate in that. If one ETF guy is selling his ETF because you own your shares of the actual stocks, it does not affect your capital gains. Now, this should be amazing to serious investors or investors with larger amounts of money. The more money you have, you should not be using old traditional mutual funds. Because you're just causing yourself more taxes. You should be using individual stocks or uh, ETFs just in terms of taxes. I'm not talking about investing. Again, this is for educational purposes only. But if you don't sell your stock, you don't pay a tax is what I'm saying. Well, same with the ETF. And the, e the only time the uh, you will have the tax ramification on the ETF is if the ETF itself changes a position moves out of a position or into another position that could cause a, a slight capital gain but that's only done once a quarter and some of the bigger ETFs are done just annually so as a result small investors don't affect your capital gain losses uh, or cost inside the mutual fund so that's number four that's another advantage now we're going to move into, um, we're going to take a commercial break, but we're going to move into diversity of ETFs, exchange traded funds. And this part just is amazing. And this is probably the most beneficial part to an exchange traded fund, even more so than stocks in many cases. Um, so let's listen to the commercial. And after the commercial break, I will tell you about the diversification of ETFs, commodities, alternatives, real estate, counter market ETFs, as we call inverse ETFs, high risk ETFs, leverage ETFs. Uh, it's just a myriad. So I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of the types of categories of ETFs that exist out there. I will even, uh, and fixed income ETFs, obviously, international ETFs, country ETFs, I can go on and on and on. 
but I will also explain to you how we use them here at Cantu Tactical Wealth Management and how the benefit they can benefit a retirement uh, portfolio if you're managing your own portfolio. All right, let's take the commercial break. If you are retiring and would like a retirement plan proposal, just visit Cantu Tactical Wealth Management's website and complete the contact form on the contact tab to get started or feel free to call 305-491-0447 and ask for a retirement plan proposal. The firm is a fiduciary and registered investment advisor in the states of California, Florida, Georgia, and Texas, providing pure independent advice. Okay, welcome back. Now we're going to get into the diversity, which is the last aspect of... uh, of mutual of ETFs, exchange traded funds, and and without question, uh, in my opinion, there is a far greater advantage of ETFs over mutual funds uh, in this aspect. Now, maybe not on some of the basic mutual funds, but as we get into leverage mutual funds, uh, counter market mutual uh, mutual funds, uh, things like that. Now, let me be be perfectly clear. An ETF, an exchange-traded fund, is in fact a mutual fund because the word mutual, you know, means that a lot of people own it, but not by the strict definition of it because of the way the the shares, the actual securities are held in a person's account. That's why in general, uh, most ETFers or people who invest in ETFs don't like calling it a mutual fund because everybody doesn't own the stocks together. It's not like the basket of stocks that you own. It's almost like you own them separately. Each person owns the same stocks, but they all own them separately. And that's what's different about an ETF versus a mutual fund. And that's why they don't call ETF typically mutual funds. It is a fund. You can say it is a fund, but it's not a mutual fund. So that's that's what the difference is. They're both funds uh, by the Security Exchange Commission. If you actually look at the technical paperwork of the Security Exchange Commission when you file, they actually call it a mutual fund. But it's an exchange-traded mutual fund. Um, Now, for those of you who are, if anybody listening to this podcast, uh, I just want to make the statement. If any of you are um, uh, registered investment advisors or professionals in the business, uh, such as a broker, uh, a stockbroker, a registered rep, a financial planner, an investment advisor, an insurance agent, and you would like to understand the difference between a closed-in mutual fund that trades on the exchange and an exchange-traded fund, then I'm just going to ask you to give me a call because there is a difference. And uh, for those of you who, in the older days, who used to see the spreads on a closed-in mutual fund, and uh, back in the old days, to tell you a quick story, I worked at a small brokerage firm when I was a baby broker. But there was a guy in the office, and he used to trade uh, closed-in fixed income funds. And he traded them that way because sometimes the spreads got too wide. And he made money doing that. 
on these uh, closed-in exchange-traded funds. Well, on an ETF, you don't have that. That does not happen with an ETF because of the way the ETF is structured and because the price on a split-second basis is always moving back to net asset value, to NAV, as we say in the business. It's always moving to NAV. And for those for the public out there, NAV, net asset value, is actually price. If you were looking at, at the price of a stock, it's the price of a stock, for example. NAV is the net asset value of all the, the shares together. So on an old traditional mutual fund at 5 o'clock, they get the NAV, the net asset value uh, of the mutual fund. Uh, and then that's, that's, you know, that's what we call it in the business NAV. Anyway, again, if you're a professional, uh, give me a call and I will explain it to you as to, uh, uh, uh how that works. <clears throat> and, and I have been, uh, I, being here in Miami, uh, I have for years, I attended the ETF conference. So I have a pretty good uh, idea and, and I've met many of the, uh, people who created the uh, active participant, uh, and I've been to the trading desks in New York. I worked on, uh, I was an invited guest on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange for one day uh, as well, but I've been on the trading desk at night trading, um, uh, visiting the actual um, market maker from many of these uh, uh, ETF positions. And in my case, I was very interested in the fixed income ETFs. So I met some of the market makers for the fixed income ETFs. And that's a very interesting aspect too. So if you're a professional, give me a call and I can tell you uh, about how all that works and why, uh, again, ETFs don't, don't trade the way and don't have the big spreads that the uh, closed in fixed income funds have. All right. So let's get into it. So you've now learned that basically every index out there that you can think of. So uh, real estate, commodities, uh, you know, there's in the commodity field, for example, uh, there's gold, GLD. Uh, it's a ticker symbol that we use quite, quite often. And again, I'm not right. Any going forward on this podcast, <laughs> any ETF I talk about or ticker symbol you can write it down for your notes. We use them at our firm, but I am not recommending you to purchase this ETF. It is strictly for educational reasons um, and strictly as entertainment as well. All right. GLD is actual gold bullion in a London bank, and it's the actual bullion, and it trades as an ETF. And then there's other ETFs that are actual gold bullion out there. IAU, I believe, is another one. But it's the actual bullion. It's the actual commodity. Now, I have been trading gold for 30 years. Now, I don't trade the physical gold. I trade the securities gold. So back in the old days, I was trading, you know, Battle Mountain Gold, Barrick Gold. Uh, you know, some of the popular stocks that I liked was Newmont Mining. Again, not recommending the stocks, just telling you what I trade. And but I would do that in order to trade gold and I would move in and out of these positions because from time to time when the stock market would fall, gold would start to move up because it's called flight to quality or flight to safety. But what's beautiful about an ETF is that now you can move into these commodity positions um, and just buy the ETF. You don't have to deal with 
you know, buying the individual stocks. Now, there are uh, gold mining stocks, gold mining ETFs like Ring, for example, R-I-N-G like gold ring. You can remember it that way. But, you know, they have because they have leverage and they have cost. Those are gold mining stocks themselves. Uh, you know, the, most of them will all own Newmont Mining because that's a big, big mining company in the world. But they move more than physical gold. So uh, the physical gold ETF is, is considered GLD. That's the biggest one, the one with the largest amount of assets. Uh, but, you know, there, there's other smaller ones, too. And, and you can, you know, do your homework. I think SGOL is another one. Um, and then there's silver, too, SLV. And there's also palladium that trades out there. There's copper. Um, there's funny. There's an ETF out there called uh, the ticker symbol is GLTR. <laughs> and and the the uh, the slang term we call it is glitter. <laughs> this is what we call it. But if you can picture, say you're looking at the ground and and of of little sparkles of gold dust and copper and palladium and and uh, I forget what the, the other one is anyway. So all, you know, uh, all on the ground uh, and silver, all on the ground. There's an ETF that covers uh, all four of those, and that's called Glitter, GLTR. Anyway, it's interesting. My point is, is that there's just so many out there. I don't want to just focus on that. Energy ETFs, there's small energy companies, small energy ETFs, um, Real estate ETFs. Now, real estate's a very interesting thing because, you know, out there, there's REITs, real estate investment trust, and that's, you know, actual real estate that that trades, you know, in a stock in a stock position. But there's also real estate ETFs that are a conglomeration of uh, real estate investment trusts. So in the real estate investment trust area, now real estate has traditionally been a very nice investment for a retirement portfolio because it pays a lot of income. So over the years, I used to put together uh, REIT portfolios. That's the slang term we call them, REITs, R-E-I-T-S, uh, REIT portfolios for retirees because of the income it throws off. And you would typically think that, that real estate is more stable. In general, it might be, but not necessarily always. But likewise, if the stock market's falling, typically real estate moves up a little bit. Not always, but, you know, there's a little bit of a counter market to it. But anyway, the point is, um, now during the crash of 2008, REITs along with mortgages and everything else collapsed. So, you know, that didn't really help at all. But, you know, there's hospital REITs, there's uh, nursing home REITs, there's strip center REITs, there's apartment buildings. I mean, there's different areas around the country. You know, you can get a, a REIT in, in the Northeast, you can get a REIT in California, Northwest, Midwest, Southeast, all kinds of REITs. So if you don't know what to get, you can go, do your homework, pull up uh, ETF REITs, R-E-I-T-S, or ETF real estate, or a real estate ETFs, you can Google that, and you can find all kinds of ETFs and look at the ticker symbols, 
and find out and just do your homework. And uh, let me just throw out some websites that are really nice to use uh, in doing ETF research. Now, uh, I have two favorites. Now, I, I pay enormous amounts of money for my research. So I'm going to try to give you uh, free websites that, uh, that you don't have to pay for uh, that offer free research. And who knows how long they're going to be free. And they do have a paid version uh, of these, all of these companies, you know, trying to get, you know, evergreen income coming in the front door. But uh, most of their research is free. So one of those companies is ETF.com. Now, ETF.com, uh, they, they, they have a database. And typically, if you want to, they have screeners. I think screener is their biggest thing. But you can go to their screener and filter out what types of ETFs you want, whether it's equities, which is stocks, fixed income, which is bonds, commodities, international uh, countries, uh, large cap, mid cap, small cap. I mean, all of those uh, types of, uh, of ETFs, but you can use their screener to try to determine what types of ETFs you're interested in. Another great website, and they actually produce a PDF report, so you have to search on their website. It's very big, very large uh, website, but eventually you can get down to produce the PDF report. And typically, I'm going to say that PDF report is, um, I'm going to say it's within six months old. Uh, I'm not going to say quarterly because I've seen some kind of old, but uh, I think they their goal is to try to do it quarterly, but they're not able to do that all the time. But typically, their PDF or their research report will be, you know, uh, every six months. And again, that's just their opinion on that that report. What you got to remember about making money in your retirement portfolio, uh, or your retirement plan portfolio, is you make money today going forward. That's very, very important to understand. So uh, quick story about that. As a baby broker, it's very easy to be a salesman and say, hey, look at this investment. It's doing great. You know, it's a uh, uh, well, let me just tell you a real quick story. So um, I have this friend and uh, he's uh, he lives outside the country. It's. It's just a friend I met at, at the Yacht Club up here. Anyway, he was <laughs> – so he has this banker in Europe, and they were recommending these Russian these Russian funds for him. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Russian funds. And I remember this, you know. And they showed him the Russian performance, and it was an outstanding performance. Now, this is like – I want to say this is like February, maybe February, uh, mid-February. And they show him this report and how great it is. And to, in my mind, this is like a baby broker or, or uh, an advisor. So when a customer sees this, he goes, oh, man, what a great return. You know, it made like, you know, 27% or something like that. And so it causes you to think, oh, well, I believe in looking at a long-term track record and all of this kind of stuff. You're thinking you're doing your due diligence. But that's not the way to invest, folks. That is not how you make money. You make money today going forward, and sometimes things change. So sometimes a seasoned advisor would tell you, 
hey, these are the parameters in place. And yeah, this investment is cheap. And because of this, going forward, we think this is going to make more money. So anyway, he showed me that investment. And I said, I said, I can't believe that guy's showing you that. I says, he's being a salesman to you. And he says, what do you mean, Joe? And I said, I said, do you know what that that Russian fund is doing in January? Now, obviously, the guy doesn't because he's from Europe. I think he lives, in, you know, on a different island. But my point is, is that uh, their their company was being a salesman to him. And it's unfortunate for the investor that he didn't realize. And I said, look, I'm going to show you the performance of that thing in January. Now, that January, the market got crushed. And that Russian fund, I mean, I think the thing was down like, I don't know, you know, 20% or something. He says, oh, my gosh. So I showed him that. And he says, I said, so you go back to these guys and you tell them. <laughs> I said, you don't, you don't want to buy that Russian fund, you know. And so that that's what's important about uh, understanding it. And so, you know, kind of when you're looking at a chart at a mutual fund, an old traditional mutual fund, sometimes you see that and, you know, oh, it's got a great chart. Well, three years, five years, you know, you make money today going forward. So to me, what's important is what is the trend in the last three months, one month, one week? Now, what's beautiful about that is because an ETF, exchange-traded fund, creates a chart just like a stock, then you can track that. And because you can track it during the day, on most of these programs, apps on your phone, you can even see the returns of how it's moving. Look at the trend in the last one week, two weeks, three days, five days, last 30 days. You know, because you're seeing the trend, you want something that you can jump, you know, I, I'm from Texas, <clears throat> I always use a, a pony analogy, but you want something where you can jump on that pony, jump on that racehorse and make some money because it's moving fast and it's moving fast now. You know, volatility is not bad. It's only bad if you're losing money. But if the thing's moving up and trend, and so at Cantu Tactical Wealth Management, we follow momentum. That's what we do. That is the name of the game for us, how we make money for our clients' portfolios. Is that, you know, we believe somewhere on the planet that there should be an investment moving up. And if it is, we want to own it. And whether it's a stock or whether it's an ETF, you know, if it's a stock in a foreign country and they have an ETF, you know, say it's Taiwan. Instead of buying the individual stock, we'll pick up the ETF on it. You know, why take the risk on the ETF and trading the stock on a foreign exchange when you can simply go out there <clears throat> and pick up a Taiwan ETF? And for disclosure reasons, I have to tell you that we do have a portfolio that does own the Taiwan ETF at the current, uh, currently, I believe this ticker symbol is EWT or, or I think that's what it is. Uh, I don't have the portfolio in front of me right now, but we do own a Taiwan ETF. We also own an Argentina ETF. We just sold our Latin American ETF, but we made we did very well on the performance of it. So anyway, my point about talking about these ETFs is I've just disclosed to you 
that there's so many international countries and regions around the world that you can participate in in uh, in in owning by owning the ETF that trades on the exchange on the New York or American exchange and simply put it in your portfolio. And in today's world, most of the ETFs are commission free. And, and, and I will tell you that, that your broker, financial advisor or whatever, they don't like it in general. I would think that they don't like it if you start trading these things yourself because simply because uh, uh, they don't get paid unless they're charging you a wrap fee, a wrap fee for, you know, say, a financial plan and the money management and things, things like that. But I will say that you have to keep up with them because things change. You know, if you have a, a prime minister or a foreign dignitary, and again, geopolitical effects affect the market, affect countries, affect regions, then you need to take your profit and run. You need to mitigate your losses or take your gains. You know, in my in my belief, if the market's moving up, you know, say say you make a thousand dollars, but you lose a thousand, uh, you made zero. If you make a thousand and you cut your losses on the other one, and you only made five hundred, and you took a five hundred loss, you still made five hundred dollars because you cut your losses sooner. That's important in managing your own portfolio. The other beauty about ETFs. Because they're in so many different sectors and the transparency is so visible to you, you can simply see if, for example, if, say, you're tracking energy and, say, the large cap energy ETF is tracking, say, at uh, making its, its tracking, say, at 3% a month, but the small cap energy ETF is tracking at, say, 7% a month, then that'll hit your momentum screens and you can see that that may be a better investment for you in terms of performance. And so you can hold on to that and then maybe ride it for a month or two or three and then rotate out of it when it runs out of gas or that racehorse runs out of gas and you jump on another pony. That whole concept of moving from industry sector to industry sector has a name in our business and that's called sector rotation. That's what we call it in our business. And uh, as in our category that we fall into is global tactical asset allocation. So we are a global manager. We trade around the world. Again, most of our portfolios are about 75% stocks and 25% ETFs. And as, as our name says, global tactical asset allocation. So we're balanced. And what that means is we're not 50-50 in stocks and bonds. We, we continuously balance the portfolio. The goal is to try to own the top five sectors in the industry. And that's just not in the U.S., but globally. But then we rotate. We're tactical. So that means we do sector rotation. Now, what's interesting is you can meet money managers say they're tactical and and that, that just means that they use sector the sector approach the way I do to purchase a portfolio. And they could use straight ETFs. They could use, say, 10 ETFs to do that. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're tactically active. They could be tactically passive. 
So now all of a sudden you're stuck with a, 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 a guy who says he's tactical, but he managed your money strategically. It means he buys and holds. So if the stock market goes down, he just rides it down and you just lose the money with it. We're tactically active. So we're a tactically active portfolio manager, which we means what we will sector rotate. You know, if the stock market's falling, then maybe the best investments are bonds. So there's ETFs in the bond category. Let's talk about that for a moment. If you are a retiree, let me say this again. If you are a retiree and you have a retirement portfolio and you are listening to my voice, this is probably the most important information you will receive on bonds in your life. Take notes or listen to this podcast again. I actually have a... um, couple of podcasts that talk about uh, this. Uh, there's one in my podcast called Age Discrimination uh, for Retirees, but it covers this aspect in more, more, much more detail. But I recommend you listen to it, get educated, because you will, in my opinion, you can make more money by understanding this and challenging your advisor if he's not doing having the correct fixed income in your portfolio. And I call it age discrimination uh, for retirees. All right, let me get into it so you can understand. So in the ETF world or in the bond world, in the fixed income world, there's primarily two major aspects of fixed income. There's the government bond arena, and there's the corporate bond arena, and then there's what we call other, and other is is like preferreds and convertibles, and I'll get into that in the middle, but you can basically put that on the corporate bond side. But um, what's important about this to to understand is that um, the... uh, if you are a retiree and they use the financial planning rules, typically because of your age, they're overloading your retirement portfolio in government bonds. And uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. I got a referral from a gal in 2013. I say gal. I believe she was in her uh, uh, late 60s. And she was at a financial planning firm. And under the financial planning rules, because of her age, They put 80% government bonds in her portfolio. Now, what was happening in 2013? In 2013, the stock market was moving up. Now, when the stock market moves up, interest rates move up. When interest rates move up, what happens to government bonds? They go down in value. Government bond funds go down in value. You lose money. So, this gal... Her portfolio, I said, I can fix this. She had given them, uh, I forget the amount, but uh, uh, I'll change the numbers to you know, preserve the innocent. Uh, let's say that uh, she had given them $500,000, and I believe that account was three hundred and and just making it up on a percentage basis was about maybe 375000 
So she had lost a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars just just in in two thousand thirteen, and uh, I think it was the summer of two thousand thirteen. So she was, you know, part of that is she was taking her uh, re required distribution RMD required minimum distribution, um, and uh, no, she had to be over seventy. So. Uh, yeah, she was over 70 because she had an RMD she had to take out. So maybe she was like 72, 73. But anyway, so in the last couple of years, she had lost $125,000 in her portfolio. But a majority of that loss was really due to the government bonds. So if the stock market's moving up, retirement people, <laughs> that means interest rates are in general are moving up as well. And if interest rates are moving up, what type of bonds should you have in your portfolio, in Joe Cantu's opinion? See, here at Cantu Tactical Wealth Management, we just don't manage fixed income or bonds for income. We also manage fixed income investments for principal gain. And what's the best way to manage investments for principal gain in fixed income investments? ETFs. ETFs have made it so easy to manage the principal gain on bonds that I used to do doing old traditional mutual fund exchanges or selling bonds. I mean, selling bonds was, was like pulling teeth and buying bonds. So I started using old traditional mutual funds and I would do a mutual fund exchange back in the old days. I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, 30 something years. But in the old days, for the, for the first 20 years of my life, I was using old traditional mutual funds to do this. Anyway, so now ETFs have made it wonderful. They have just made it so beautiful to be able to trade fixed income ETFs. So. If the markets would have, so I took that account, and first off, I moved it over to equities. I had it probably about 75% equities, but I'm talking blue chip stocks. Now, this is back in 2013. Again, not recommending the stocks, but I had stocks in there like Disney, uh, Walt, Walt Disney, uh, McDonald's, uh, Johnson & Johnson, um, ExxonMobil. Uh, you know, Mickey D's back then, I remember for five years straight was averaging 25% return. Plain old Mickey D's, McDonald's was averaging 25% a year. You know, they had come out with salads and if you remember all that kind of stuff. And and anyway, so just simple blue chip stocks, uh, you know, you know, and, and what was funny is when I met her, her husband had died and she says, you know, Joe, she goes, I don't know why they put so many bonds in my account. She goes, me and my husband, she goes, we always own stocks. She goes, he, he retired from AT&T, and we had all this AT&T stock, and, you know, we had the baby bells. So she was a stock lady. This gal knew stock. So from my perspective, I call this uh, age discrimination because they wouldn't let her overweight her account in equities, even though she was comfortable in equities, and that was her risk tolerance because of her age. And so if you're going to have fixed income in there, then you need to have corporate bonds because corporate bonds have a little bit of a tie to uh, stocks. You know, for example, you can have a McDonald's corporate bond. You can have an AT&T corporate bond. You can have an Exxon corporate bond. You know, so there's now ETFs 
that have corporate bonds. And it's beautiful. So you can get a corporate bond ETF. You can Google it. Uh, oh, the other website to tell you that I enjoy uh, that's free is, uh, I didn't mention it, uh, is um, ETFDB. ETF Delta Bravo. ETFDB. It stands for database. ETFDB. I love it. It's a wonderful site. But you can go to ETFDB, go to their database, and you can find their ETF free research. And, of course, there's Morningstar.com, and they have stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Uh, but when you go to that, the, their, their website is very, very big. But you got to go down to performance or returns, click that, and scroll down, and then see the performance. And you can keep scrolling down and see the holdings and stuff like that. But anyway, so we took her account or uh, – our firm, we took her account and, you know, to, to, to make a happy ending to the story, uh, uh, we recovered, you know, all the money she has, to, you know, that, that she had that she lost. And this very day, she takes her RMD and, uh, and you know, she, she lives fine and she has stocks, bonds and ATS. But the key thing that I want you to understand about this story is that we converted the government bonds, we, we pushed those out and put equities in there, but the bonds that we had in there were corporate bonds, and then they moved up. So here today, with the return of the COVID-19 on the rebound, what were interest rates back in March? They were zero. Since March, do a comparison of a government bond ETF. Do a comparison of a government bond ETF or a government bond mutual fund, whatever you want to do, and compare it to a corporate bond ETF. Now, we have, uh, for disclosure reasons, uh, we also have convertible bonds, uh, convertible bond ETFs. So those typically do well like preferreds. So one of the corporate bond, uh, convertible bond ETFs we have in there, I believe, is ICVT is a ticker symbol. India, Charlie, Victor Tango. If you're, I'm a West Point graduate, so a lot of my classmates may be listening to this, so alphanumerics. But a very popular convertible bond ETF is, is Charlie Whiskey Bravo. It's a convertible bond. And then there's also preferred ETFs. Now, there's preferred stock, but preferred stock is considered a fixed income investment. And there's, uh, I think there's uh, uh, PDF, uh, Papa Delta Foxtrot, or PFF might be another one. But anyway, these are these are corporate tied. You know, so as interest rates move up, you don't want to be in government bonds. If you're a retiree and you have a retirement portfolio, you're gonna lose money, and there's nothing you can do about it. Is there? Yes, there is. You can talk to your advisor. What I recommend is if you look at your account and you see anything with the word government in there, I would give him a call, in my opinion. I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you what we do. But we would move that out and just meet with him, talk to him, and see if there's a better way and what he suggests. But in my opinion, you know, it's it's uh, uh, as interest rates are moving up, corporate bonds do much better in performance in a retirement portfolio than government bonds. So if under the financial planning rules, they won't move you out of equities, which are making more money during when interest rates are moving up and markets moving up. 
and they want to keep the fixed income position in there, then meet with your advisor and suggest that maybe you analyze, that, that he analyzes or call him on the phone and say, hey, conduct an analysis of corporate bonds. Are there better corporate bonds that we can put in the portfolio and adjust the portfolio without costing me any money? Now, that's a key thing because if you're in old traditional mutual funds, if they stay in the family of funds, they can move from a government bond fund over to a corporate bond fund or a strategic bond fund uh, without any additional cost. And because it's a free mutual fund exchange, if you're using the old traditional mutual funds. But by doing that, that causes your retirement portfolio to now start to make money because now you're having corporate bonds in a rising interest rate market. You see, so it was very easy for me to see back in March that interest rates were zero. I knew to stay away from government bonds. I mean, that was death and destruction on a retirement portfolio. But the most unfortunate thing is all these retirees out here who are uh, of greater age and the greater age forces the financial planning rules to overload them on bonds. But your advisor should know what type of bonds to put them in, to, to, to put inside the portfolio. If he knows interest rates are moving up and interest rates are zero, then okay. So you have to be in bonds. Then use investment grade corporate bonds. Now, very popular. I think the biggest asset, the biggest asset investment grade corporate bond ETF out there is a ticker symbol called LQD. LQD is a ticker symbol for that. We also own that in our portfolios. Uh, but anyway, so now let's move into what we're going to call uh, counter market. And I could talk forever. I also have a YouTube video on ETFs. Uh, it's kind of hard to find, but <laughs> anyway, I do have a YouTube video. You can type in Joe Cantu. I'm not sure you'll, you'll find it that way, but I have a YouTube video on on. ETFs out there that, that explains uh, a lot of what I'm talking about. Uh, now let's move into counter market ETFs. Now this stuff is kind of amazing. So you've heard people talk about shorting the market. Shorting the market basically means if the stock market's going up, you sell a stock short or you sell the market short and you make money. And then when you go to buy it back, you make the difference. That's called shorting the market. Well, you know, with uh, stocks, you have to, if you want to short Apple or whatever, you, you can sell it short. You actually borrow the stock against your brokerage firm. You sell it short, and then uh, you go to buy it back. And when you buy it back, you keep the difference. Now, during that time, you pay margin interest, which is a little bit of a negative while you're shorting the particular stock. But they actually have ETFs out there that short the market. And, uh, yeah, that's amazing, right? They not only have ETFs that short the S&P 500, uh, and you can Google that. You can Google uh, ETFs uh, that short the stock market, and you'll get several symbols. of. There's Dow Jones uh, ETFs that short the, uh, uh, the Dow, which is the Dow 30. Uh, there's uh, ETFs that short the Qs. Now, the Qs, there's QQQ, and those are the typically the technology stocks, a very popular ETF. 
out there, Quebec, Quebec, Quebec. And but there's also um, an ETF that shorts the Qs, and it might be a QQQS or SQQQ. I forget what it is. But so that's what's amazing. So now, for once in your life, you can make money when the stock market is falling by owning an ETF that shorts the market. Now, I'm going to go one step further and say there's crazy ETFs that are leveraged that will do two times shorting the market and uh, even three times. And those are called bear. So when you look at the ETFs, if it says bear, that means they're shorting the market. They're going down. They're betting on the market going down. If they're bull ETFs, three times bull or two times bull, that means they're leveraging up the market. Now, just to be straight, you don't really make two times and three times because there's a cost inside of it. So if it's a two times, you might make, you know, one and a half times or one and 0.65 times. Same on shorting the market. You won't, you know, make two times, you know, you might make one and a half times or you know, whatever. But keep that in mind. But you can Google that. You can Google ETFs that short the market. Now, I have a whole um, podcast on hedging. And and having, when, when the market goes down, I have a podcast that talks about hedging. But I don't really get into the um, ETFs very much on hedging. But they're a useful tool. I would recommend you don't hold these very long because as soon as, I mean, because you got to realize when you go to work every day, you go to work to make money at your company for your company, for example, and the goal is for the company stock to go up. So the tendency is for the market to always recover. It always doesn't. You can lose your money, but the general tendency is to do that. As a result, you don't want to hold your short ETFs, or and they call them inverse, by the way, inverse ETFs. You can Google uh, inverse ETFs for the stock market. But you shouldn't hold your inverse ETFs very long or counter-market ETFs. You need to take your money and run and then put it in cash or fixed income or whatever you want to do with it. And and these, these high-risk ones, this leverage that are two times and three times the market, I mean, they're they're like it. I mean, they're they're just unbelievable in terms of it. But they're in all categories. There's energy ETFs that are leveraged two times, three times energy. There's two times three three times the banks. There's uh, I believe there's two times the the inverse, the negative, the banks. And uh, uh, I actually have a we actually have a hedge fund strategy here at the firm, and we used inverse the banks. Uh, uh, for a while, we, we, we've actually used both inverse the banks and bull the banks in both cases. But, you know, in protecting a portfolio, if you're protecting a retirement portfolio, they're very useful tools uh, at protecting portfolio, especially if the market's starting to fall. You can use these tools and you have to figure out, you have to do your math and your homework to figure out what percentage you should put in there. Obviously, you shouldn't do 50%. Or maybe not 25, but maybe somewhere between 5 and 15, you know, to kind of, you got to kind of have a, an, an idea 
of and and what you might be doing is only protecting the gains that you have in your portfolios even though the inverse investment is making money uh moving up it's protecting the positions that are moving down for a net zero gain now what's beautiful about that is when the market starts to move up you pull out those those inverse ETFs, I call them counter market securities, which could be fixed income and, and inverse ETFs. You pull them out there. All of a sudden, you're you're 10% ahead of uh, or 5% ahead of your contemporaries. So when the market moves up, your portfolios move to a profit, your retirement portfolios move to a profit, you know, rather quickly because you didn't take the losses because you hedged your portfolio. So I actually have a podcast on hedging if you want to look at, at, you know, more of those things. But, you know, there are wonderful tools out there, especially in the ETF world, that can help you do this with minimal risk. And you're not paying the margin interest by shorting by shorting the stock. That's the beauty about it. You move in the position, you move out of the position. So anyway, that concludes uh, my uh, podcast. It's rather, rather long podcast. I apologize for that, but uh, I had a lot to say. Uh, anyway, I have some disclosures at the end uh, that are required because I'm a registered investment advisor. Please take a listen. Joe Cantu, Chief Investment Officer of Cantu Tactical Wealth Management, is your host and has over 30 years of experience in the retirement money management profession. He is a West Point graduate with a master's in business administration and has worked for three of the largest Wall Street firms as a stockbroker and portfolio manager. Over 10 years ago, he created Cantu Tactical Wealth Management, which actively balances and selects investments based on a tactical approach rather than the traditional strategic management method. Instead of the buy and hold philosophy, he believes in the pursuit of finding investments showing momentum performance regardless of the direction of the market. His experience includes IRA accounts, 401k rollovers, trusts, endowments, defined benefit plans, 403bs, and 401k plans. Additionally, he served as a night college instructor for seniors, teaching high net worth retirement and estate planning for 14 years. Podcast views and personal opinions are for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation. Investing has risk of loss and you should consult with your own advisors for any financial decisions. Cantu Tactical Wealth Management and Joe Cantu are a fiduciary firm and registered investment advisor in the states of California, Florida, Georgia, and Texas providing pure independent advice and money management.